0: If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, we will continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae this morning, looking at verses 16 through 23. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 984, page 984, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. The title of our sermon this morning is Legalists and Mystics and Ascetics. Oh, my. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are shadow, substance, and body. Well, I think one of the most important books to be published thus far in my lifetime is a book that many of you are familiar with called The Whole Christ by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And you remember, many of you, that uh, th- about a year ago or so we spent... Our time in Sunday school looking at that uh, work, and uh, we, we read that together, and a group of us uh, continued reading and working through that together alongside The Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher. But something we see in those books, and books like them, is that they really strike, uh, they, they set to strike an understanding, a right understanding of the balance that we need between law and and gospel the law of god and the gospel of jesus christ and the focus especially the focus of dr ferguson is making sure that christians don't have a half learned christ but that we would know and understand the whole christ and by that what is meant that we don't know something about christ but uh, that we not understand just part of christ or or something about him and then not see the full implications of what it means to have faith in Christ. And really, if you think about it, you'll realize that all of Paul's letter in the New Testament, maybe with the exception of some of the pastoral epistles, are letters addressing people who have a half-learned Christ. They do not understand, they do not know the whole Christ. Now, let me help you get a better sense of what I'm talking about here. We all know people who have a half-learned Christ. We all know people who believe things about Christ, and maybe we just sort of scratch our heads and wonder how in the world it is that they've gotten to the conclusions that they've reached. In reality, evangelical Christians are some of the most gullible people in the world when it comes to hearing from someone with a strong personality Maybe someone with very well polished rhetoric promising that they have they have the way, they have the knowledge, to greater spiritual life or to greater spiritual fullness. And that's how the charlatans stay on the airwaves and on television. People are gullible. And so maybe their perception is that Christ is just sort of out there and while he's out there, he's doing miracles and healing people or raising people from the dead or he's making people more wealthy or whatever it is. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about. They have some aspect of Christ's nature, that he's fully God and he works supernaturally, for example. And they only know that part about him or only focus on that aspect of who he is. And then, in the end, they build everything else around that understanding and forget the rest of who Christ is. So they've only half learned Christ. They need the whole Christ. They have all kinds of religious language. They have all kinds of religious ideas. They may sound very spiritual, and yet they are deeply erroneous. As we talked about a few weeks ago, There are many false teachers who sound good, they are very convincing in many ways, they are persuasive, they are alluring, but they're not preaching the whole Christ. And that makes them deadly. Kent Hughes tells a story of a visit he took to Krakow, Poland. And in Krakow, there's a square at the center of town, and it's bordered on one side by by the massive spires of St. Mary's Church. And from the great steeple in St. Mary's Church, a bugle has been sounded every day for the last 700 years. Well, the last note of the bugle is always muted and broken as if some disaster had befallen the bugler. Well, the 700-year commemoration is in memory of a heroic trumpeter who on a certain night summoned the people to defend their city against the invading Tartars. And as he was sounding the last blast of the trumpet, an arrow from one of the Tartars struck and killed them. And so there's this muffled note at the end of the trumpet blast every night to remember him. The Krakowians have never forgotten this heroic warning. And this is what Paul is doing for us. He's giving us this heroic warning. He's sounding the trumpet. He's he's reminding us of what we need to watch out for. And specifically warning the Christians in Colossae of what was going on already and what was going to continue going on lest they heeded his warning. He wanted them to be aware that they not have a half-Christ that the false teachers were trying to bring into the church instead of the whole Christ that they knew and had believed. So let's read part of Paul's warning in our text this morning, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It may seem odd to say, but there is a very real sense in which the divine grace of God will always be a threat to human nature. Grace undermines our constant impulse, our gut-level desire as human beings to want to justify ourselves. Grace runs counter to human pride and that impulse that we all feel to boast in our own accomplishments. Grace requires that we defer all praise to God who gives that grace. Grace undermines our best efforts to establish a list of requirements and and prohibitions that we can impose on ourselves, that we can impose on others as a condition that we might gain acceptance with God. Grace demands only one thing, That we defer all glory, all honor, all credit to Jesus Christ for what He has done, for whom He is, and for what we have done, we recognize that all that we deserve is not grace but judgment, and we instinctively hate that. Now it sounds odd, especially as Christians, because we're so often, as we've sang already this morning, giving thanks to God for His grace. We're we're constantly thinking about God's grace and we, we sing about and continue to orient our lives that we would live upon His grace. And yet in our flesh, we instinctively rebel against His grace because we prefer to do it on our own, even when we know we're going to fail to do it on our own in the end. It's just in us. But this is why the more faithfully and the more powerfully the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached accurately, the more prone some people can be to venture into legalism. Once you declare that God has graciously provided everything we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that fallen human nature is prone to rise up and to protest and to try to sneak in some rule or regulation that we in our strength can fulfill, or an observation of, of ritual that we, without God's enabling power, can perform. And that will supposedly enhance our spiritual standing, or, or that will gain some reward. And in the end, put God in our debt. All of a sudden, He's going to owe us something. It all seems so backwards, doesn't it? And in circular fashion, this kind of thinking reminds us yet again why we so desperately need God's grace. Because without it, we are so prone to assume that we don't. Well, as we've been looking at, as we know, the Colossians have heard and received by grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have turned from self-reliance. They have turned from their prideful self-justification to rest in the whole Christ. But along came these false teachers, these Gnostics, and some of the believers were beginning to listen. And, And what Paul warns them about is three major areas that they were trying to finagle their way into people's lives with. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So let's look at each of these areas in our main points this morning. The first in verses 16 and 17. Paul shows us that Christ has fulfilled all that God requires and set us free from an obligation to live legal lives. The first warning Paul is offering here is a warning with regard to two specific areas of legalism, namely food and drink. That's one. And days of the week, or months or years, that's two. So we can say the first things he addresses are diets and days. First, with diets. All throughout the history of the church, there have been groups that have insisted that the way to remain faithful, if you want to be really spiritual, is to continue to observe the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. We are all aware that that under the Old Covenant, God's people, Israel, were required to adhere to certain dietary restrictions because some foods were declared clean by God while others were unclean. There were, in fact, many things that God made this distinction with, many things that were made clean and many things that were declared unclean. Now, because many of these things that were considered unclean were later declared clean, we recognize that the thing in itself wasn't the issue that God was primarily concerned about. In other words, shellfish itself wasn't unclean because it was shellfish as if something was wrong with their shrimp and lobster. No, it was unclean because God said it was unclean to give them a picture or a principle to make a distinction between things clean and unclean, as the people themselves were supposed to do amongst themselves with them and those who were outside of God's people. There was a spiritual concept, a spiritual principle at play that was to be at work in the minds of the people making distinctions day in and day out about clean and unclean. It was to be built into their consciousness, this importance of making this distinction. But how did Jesus address all of this during his ministry? Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who were pretending like they were super offended by Jesus' new liberated eating habits. In Mark chapter 7, he said, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And Mark tells us, Thus he declared all foods clean." And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision. The scriptures say he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came from him and said a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And of course, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about food as well. There are entire chapters and letters dedicated to these issues related to food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And there are so many more statements we could look at in the New Testament, and all of them are in agreement, namely to say that food and drink, all food and all drink are lawful. Now, i Didn't say, notice, that there aren't excesses to be aware of. There are. The Bible is consistent. It's warning against gluttony, against drunkenness. But dietary discipline in and of itself is not a sign of spirituality. You aren't proving anything about your spirituality by being able to maintain a rigorous diet plan. There are plenty of really vain, self-obsessed people who hate God that are very disciplined in their diets. And yet, these Gnostics were trying to convince the Colossians that they had a need to maintain dietary restrictions, to refrain from certain kinds of food and drink if they were going to be sufficiently spiritual and sufficiently faithful, if they were going to have a meaningful relationship with God. The same thing continues to be propagated today amongst, for example, the Seventh-day Adventists who restrict the types of food that their adherents can eat. You see it in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. They have mandated fasts which restrict types of food that can be eaten on certain days of the week and various seasons throughout the year. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong with fasting. It can be a helpful spiritual discipline, and yet that in and of itself does not commend us anymore to God. But evidently the false teachers in Colossae were declaring that those who enjoyed their freedom in Christ to eat and drink within the parameters established in Scripture that they stood condemned or were on the threshold of losing divine approval or some other kind of similar pronouncement. No, says Paul, don't let them judge you for what you eat and drink. In like manner, Paul addresses similar ideas with regard to days. Again, we see in the Old Covenant that there were numerous days that were to be honored. Sabbaths and festivals. The Jews had special feast days. They had new moon celebrations and they had Sabbaths. The Jewish life was governed and patterned around certain days all throughout the year. Now, in terms of feasts and festivals and and new moon celebrations, they were each a remembrance of the work of God in some significant way. And especially with regard to a work of rescue or redemption of his people, whether that was Passover or the festival of booths or Yom Kippur or Purim. There were so many different festivals, all pointing to some aspect of God's work amongst his people. All of them, Paul is going to tell us, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There were new moons. Every month thereabout, when a new moon came, it was observed. It was an honored day to give thanks to God that we've now, what we've considered, another full month has come and gone, and we we give thanks for the new days ahead. It was a sort of thanksgiving recognition. Now, Sabbaths here may be a bit more tricky because we automatically assume that, that Paul is talking about the Decalogue and the Fourth Commandment, but this is not what's going on here in this text. All throughout the Old Testament, you read about the Sabbath, which is what we see in the creation account being established by God on the seventh day of creation for rest, and that was codified in the Decalogue as a commandment from God. And we also read about Sabbaths, plural, in the Old Covenant, which were specific days during each month where burnt offerings were offered to the Lord. Now interestingly, as these are referred to in the Old Testament, it's almost always that all three of these things are mentioned together: feasts, new moons, and sabbaths. There is something similar in each of these, namely that we have a a certain kind of observance that is different. And in this instance, we want to recognize that it's especially different from the Sabbath that we see in the law in the Decalogue, and I wish I had time to get into all of this more, but I don't. This is, a, this is a text, though, that people often use to take out of context, to try to say that the Lord doesn't require us to have a Lord's Day today. But to do so is to completely rip this out of context and to understand something that Paul is not saying. This isn't the same kind of day, just because the word may be similar. There are a lot of other texts to get us exactly to the place where we understand something of the Christian Sabbath. The Lord's Day is on the first day of the week, and it is to be honored in fulfilling the fourth commandment. But for our purposes here, like food, these false teachers were telling the Colossians that they also had to pattern their lives after the old covenant calendar in order to be sufficiently spiritual. So how does Paul respond to all of this? Well, he tells them that the food and the days were all shadows of things to come, the true substance who is Christ. They were types of what would come, of what would be fulfilled. And so you have the shadow that points to the substance, the type and the anti-type. The dietary rules sensitize God's people to ideas of purity. The great Feasts and new moons and Sabbaths taught various aspects of of God's work and creation and redemption. They were all just shadows. The substance came in Christ. And to continue to look at these things, diets and days, as, as things that could provide spiritual benefit, was to undermine the work of Christ. It reduces the work of Christ to being less than it actually is. And the notion that there is some kind of way to quantify our spirituality as if there was some kind of way to be able to tally up our works to to provide us with a greater spiritual standing provides an unfortunate basis for pride, for pride in the individual, for pride in the church, any church that holds to such ideas. And what comes of that? Judgmentalism towards those who don't do the same things in the same ways. When we're legal hearted, our only, our only response to anyone is that we judge others by a standard of our creation. And if they don't do the things, the ways that we suppose that they are supposed to do them, to, provide, to prove their faithfulness to us and, and their spirituality, we assume they are compromisers and perhaps we even judge them as not being Christians at all. And then what happens to our relationships? We stand at odds. If we are relating to one another on a legal basis, the only thing we can do is be at enmity with one another. There's no way that any of us can have legal hearts and still have profitable, life giving, soul stirring relationships with other people. It's not possible. We will always be looking for others to fulfill our own standards of our own making. We want them to live up to our demands. And when they don't live up to our demands, we strike with the law because the law is unbending and rigid and strict. In terms of our application of that law in someone else's life, we are much more willing to show grace to ourselves. And so one of the things you see, especially if an entire church has embraced legalism in a very stringent uniformity, you start to see all of the people dress the same. They all start to say the same things. They all start to use the same language and talk about everything in exactly the same terms. And so often, whoever their leader is gets treated with this, with this unhealthy reverence. They insist on being referred to by their title. They demand respect. The people live in fear of disappointing him. And they essentially have a mindset that he can do no wrong. You see, legalism only breeds fear and enmity. There is no alternative. And so, if people are living at enmity with one another because they're all living with legal hearts, the only way to handle that in a collective group of people is to come with more law, with more regulation, to continue to control them. How do I control them? I can only do that with fear, with overbearing. And so we pile law upon law because there is no room for grace. You see, Paul was very concerned that the church not fall into what the legalists were bringing to them, that they only relate to one another in terms of law. There is no spiritual health when legalism is present. It's not possible because it limits a person to self-righteousness and an attempt to live fully upon oneself instead of living upon the righteousness of Christ alone. And I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul says, do not let anyone judge you in these things, in verse 16. In other words, he's not saying, don't have a special diet or don't celebrate certain days or whatever. He, he's not saying, don't do these things at all. He's not sort of flipping the script and saying, because they're saying you have to do these things, don't do these things. No, he's saying, if you want to do them, Great. If you don't want to do them, great. You want to celebrate Christmas? Go right ahead. You don't want to? No problem. You want to refrain from pork and selfish? Fine. You're causing yourself needless suffering, but go ahead. (laughs) You want to only eat bacon all the time? Good on you. Well done. And whatever you do or don't do, that thing is up to you in Christ. You have that freedom. But you don't have the freedom, and this is very important, you don't have the freedom to judge others when they do or don't do that same thing. And Paul says, don't let others judge you on these matters. This is a warning to be taken to heart, because time and time again, as legalism has come into the church, the church has become judgmental and joyless and uniform and very shallow in faith. We are free in Christ, brothers and sisters. Let's live free and eat and drink and celebrate free from the joyless, legal-hearted attempts to nail us down to regulations that God has not mandated for us. But Paul goes on, there is more to what's going on in Colossae. We see in verses 18 and 19 that mysticism is a lie that promises what it cannot deliver. From 1966 to 1968, Johnny Kerr was the head coach of the Chicago Bulls basketball team in the NBA. And one time, Kerr told the story about how he was trying to help his team. He said, we had lost seven in a row, and I decided to give a psychological pep talk before the game with the Celtics. I told Bob Boozer to go out and pretend he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Jerry Sloan to pretend he was the best defensive guard. I told Guy Rogers to pretend he could run, on, run an offense better than any other guard. I told Eric Mueller to pretend he was the best at rebounding, shot blocking, and scoring than any other center in the game. We lost the game by 17. I was pacing around the locker room afterwards trying to figure out what to say when Mueller walked up, put his arm around me and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. (laughs) You see, the Gnostics, these, these false teachers, they were pretending that they had this great spiritual insight, but it was all a hoax. It was all a mirage. And it's a surprise that anyone was falling for it. But they were, and they so often do today, don't they? You don't have to watch TV preachers very long to see all of this nonsense. If you go to any country in Africa, take your pick. The billboards line the streets with mystical promises of deliverance and healings and miracles and you name it. The promise is there if you just have enough faith. It's the same nonsense. It all comes back to the individual. If you're spiritual enough, you will get it, you will receive it, it will be yours. You want a baby? You'll have a baby if you come to our prayer service and have enough faith. You want more money? Just give us some of it and we will multiply it. You want to be taken over by the Holy Spirit? Just pray in tongues and have the pastor anoint you with oil. It's never-ending nonsense, but people buy it and they take it in droves. They love it. They can't get enough. I've heard the most outlandish stories from people going into great detail as to what they have seen and what they have experienced. Some will tell you that they've they've died and gone to heaven and talked with Jesus, and they were dead for days. And what they saw in heaven, they were told to bring back and to give as a special message for everyone still living on earth. They've done all kinds of things. And in the end, you know what they're doing? They're making it all up. It's all a lie. These false prognosticators feign humility. They're pretending like they're super spiritual. They were wrapped up in, and Paul shows us, in the worship of angels. They're making claims like, we are not good enough to go directly to God. And so we begin with one of the angels, and if we come in the right spirit, then our request will be elevated to the next level and the next level, and we continue on this until maybe we're privileged enough to get our request to God. And so what they're really doing is worshiping angels. It's in like manner today to those who pray to so-called saints or to Mary. As much as they deny it, they're offering worship to them. And we also see in the text that the Gnostics were claiming to have special visions. They were seeing things in their dreams, supposedly. They're having special visions, supposedly, that gave them greater spiritual knowledge, greater spiritual insight, deeper spiritual wisdom, more profound religious experiences. And while they're pretending to be humble in all this, Paul says they are actually puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. You see, to claim such super-spirituality is the epitome of pride, isn't it? It is all vanity. It is all a farce, but it's so enticing. Think about how you've had times in your life where you just wanted to know. Maybe you just wanted to know the right thing to do in a a specific situation. You, You had a decision to make. Maybe you have several options, and one of them could turn out well, but you just you don't know, and you wish you could have a dream or a vision, or you, you want to hear a voice from heaven, or you want a visit from an angel, or you want a letter in the mail. Have you been there before? This is so enticing to the flesh, isn't it? That's why people can open psychic studios and do tarot card readings and palm readings and actually make money, not because it's true or because it's real, but because we so desperately long to to know we want things laid out for us. But the reality is that we have all that is necessary for life and godliness in the Scriptures, and yet we want more. We beg for signs and wonders, and yet we have all that we need right before our eyes. Listen, remember the Pharisees? They demanded a sign from Jesus to prove that he was who he said he was, and he didn't do it. Why? Because they had already seen his miracles. They knew what he could do. They knew what he did. But they still did not believe. But we're not any better today, are we? So the response of Jesus to those who had seen his miracles is very instructive. God will not do tricks for those who do not believe, let alone those who have hardened their hearts completely against him. So, so Jesus told the Pharisees that they would get no sign from him. And if what they had seen did not convince them, nothing would. And the foundational problem is what Paul writes here in verse 19, namely that the one who appeals to mysticism is not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. In other words, they aren't holding on to the whole Christ. They've only known a half Christ. Christ. So they want to demand from Christ something that Christ will not give them because they've not experienced the fullness of communion with him that he so freely offers. It's there for them, but they won't take it because they want something else. Brothers and sisters, do you long for a sign from God? Do you think being a Christian is complete with some kind of radical spiritual experiences and when you've truly believed, you hear a a voice from God or you speak in tongues or you do miracles? Well, the Bible tells us there is something far greater than all of this and it is in believing and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ alone who reveals himself from the scriptures. You know what's amazing about the Bible? It's that we don't need to have mystical experiences because we have the sure, objective, true, infallible, inerrant Word of God. So mystical experiences are unnecessary. We don't have to try to figure out if the voice we heard was from God or if we just had some bad Taco Bell the night before. We don't have to try to speak in tongues, we don't have to try to hear from angels. We have the sure, true Word of God, and it is a glorious gift for the church. And so our tendency is to to think that it's not enough. And if you think it's not enough, then surely you're not reading it and understanding it for all that it is. Last warning, Paul gives verses 20 through 23, asceticism only appears to be holy. It's not. It's not. God has given us... So many wonderful, good gifts in this world, and the tendency sometimes is to reject them under the assumption that to accept them, to embrace them, to love them, to take part of them is too enjoyable. Or or we like it too much, and and maybe we might even crack a smile or have a good time, so we shouldn't do it at all. Sadly, there's been so many attempts throughout the history of the church to call evil evil what God has created and called good for his people to enjoy. And so instead of enjoying it, the tendency is to say, don't touch it, don't taste it, don't even look at it. And so you name it, it has probably been rejected by some group throughout time in the name of Christ. We've already looked at food and drink. The food isn't isn't the big one in the South, let's be honest. People don't have any problem eating in the South. Drink is... There are groups that reject marriage as a good. They say the super spiritual don't need to be married. And so they take vows of chastity and the results have been tragic. There's often a rejection of of sex as a gift from God. And so it becomes a taboo subject that people won't talk about. It's something people refuse to admit they enjoy or that they can delight in. And at best, it's viewed simply to be done for procreation as opposed to communing of souls for enjoyment and pleasure and delight in the gift of God that he has given to his people who have covenanted together in marital union. It's a beautiful thing. But this self-made religion does not do any good for anyone. In fact, it can heighten our fleshly temptations, and along with that, it produces a joyless, defensive approach to life. There was an entire aesthetic movement in the church, in the Middle Ages especially, and the most popular of those who who were given to all of this were called the Desert Fathers. These were men who went into the desert, and they took vows of silence and vows of poverty, and they lived in complete solitude while doing all kinds of other aesthetic practices. Some were spending their days balancing on tall poles, like telephone poles, for hours, sometimes even days at a time, apparently to prove their spiritual devotion to God. Others would starve themselves for weeks on end. Some would flagellate themselves with whips and chains. Others would sleep on the floor, some on beds of nails. They walked on coals or over scorpions and asps to prove their commitment to God's protecting them. The stories are numerous and none more appealing than the next, but it became a very popular practice for a long time. This is how many uh, monastic orders came into being through asceticism. But again, I must remind us that this is not a thing of the past. This is very much a thing that we see today. It was very much a part of what Paul was warning the Colossians against. Seen for what it really is, This is an expression of independence from God which says, I'm going to get God on my terms by my own might. Asceticism feeds the flesh by starving it. You could only be puffed up with pride in engaging in such practices. And so what is the answer to such delusion? It's in verse 20. We have died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. Remember we saw... Last time, as we considered our death with Christ. And our death in Christ has freed us from the elemental spirits of the world. The powers of this world would promote and thrive on human asceticism. And because we died with Christ, these powers have no actual power over us. So we can live in the full joy of God's creation, enjoying Him, enjoying His people, and enjoying His stuff. Now, real quick, I want to mention four things Paul points out that are problematic with asceticism. We'll just name them and move on. He, he faults asceticism on four grounds. Notice the first one in verse 22. All the things that are being denounced are things that are perishable objects of the material world that perish as they are used. They're not lasting. There is some, nothing of real value here. Secondly, Such rules, again, verse 22, are according to human precepts and teaching. And isn't this the essence of every kind of legalism? The demand that others conform to your conscience in areas where God Himself is silent. Third, this approach only seems wise. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Now, When you look at someone so dedicated and disciplined to denying themselves the ordinary and and free and enjoyable gifts of life, it is easy to be deceived by the appearance of spirituality. Such people look committed, they look pious, they look holy, but appearances can be deceiving. I know Christians who have have written off owning all sorts of things because they wanted to make sure that it was clear by all outward appearances that they were really suffering for Christ as if that was a virtue. That's asceticism. And when articulated, it may sound spiritual and wise, but it's all very self-promoting and deceptive. Fourth and finally, perhaps Paul's most important statement, notwithstanding the surface spirituality that such religious experiences or activities produced, verse 23 says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Rules and prohibitions and self-denial that spring from man's own religious creativity are utterly ineffective in curbing the desires of the flesh. The flesh mocks any such attempt to inhibit its expression. Asceticism in and of itself will not help you keep in check your sinful urges and and it won't energize your war with temptation. So what will? Only one thing, and that is knowing and trusting and believing the whole Christ. Knowing Christ, communing with Christ, believing all of Christ. And so you have to be left with that question. Do you know the whole Christ? Do you know the whole Christ who did fulfill the law that you could not fulfill even though God requires it of you? Not with a little variation here or there, but according to God's law, to perfection. You could not do it. I could not do it. No one has done it other than Christ, and He did it for us. The whole Christ who died upon a cross, taking upon himself the full wrath of the Father that was reserved for us, for our sins, for our offense against him, the wrath that we deserve because of who we are in rebellion against him, at enmity with him. The whole Christ who died in our place, taking upon ourselves, himself our sins that we might live upon his righteousness. Do you know that whole Christ? The whole Christ who was buried in the grave, he was put in a tomb and three days later was raised from the dead that we too might be raised up to new and everlasting life with him forever and ever. That we would have perfect, unhindered communion with him as we enter into glory and yet that communion we can have with him even now by faith. Do you know that whole Christ? You see, the answer to legalism is the continual realization of the grace of Christ in the glorious gospel that sets us free from having to live upon our own righteousness. And it frees us up to live upon Christ's righteousness instead. The answer to mysticism is an understanding of how profoundly we are related to Christ. Not needed experiences to validate what we know to already be true from God's word. Not needed special spiritual knowledge or visions or dreams or miracles, but simply trusting the word of God alone because it is sure and it is true. The answer to asceticism is the reckoning that we have died, we have been buried, and we have been resurrected with Christ, so there is no need to abuse our bodies and suffer needlessly to prove that we are more than we actually are. We need not die to the good gifts that God has given us to prove our worth. We need to die to ourselves to show that we know Christ alone is worthy and the only one who is worth our lives that matters in the end. We need the whole Christ for the whole Christian life if we are to live a whole Christianity. May God help us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great reminder of your word this morning of the importance of remaining tethered to the whole Christ not venturing off into our legalistic fantasies, not adhering to some form of mysticism, not walking after the false promises of asceticism, but embracing and loving and trusting and holding fast to and communing with the whole Christ. We pray, O God, that you would help us to be reminded afresh today of the grace that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are fully dependent upon, that we not live with legal hearts at enmity with one another and at enmity with you, but that we would live fully upon the righteousness of Christ alone, that we might have sweet communion with him, that we might be able to walk in obedience and in so doing that you continue to bless us with sweeter communion, that we might walk more faithfully Having died to ourselves, living upon all that you have given to us by your grace alone. And so we pray you would do all of these things for your glory, for the good and building up and strengthening of your church. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.